Our text is Ezra chapter 7. If you'd open your Bibles there, or you want to follow along on your device. Ezra chapter 7, the topic, six times in the next two chapters, Ezra describes what he calls the good hand of his God upon him. The title of our message, He Want to Hold Your Hand. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are loving, concerned, heavenly Father. You've drawn us to this place, Lord, to uh, show yourself to us, to instruct us, to, to bless us, actually. I pray that we would receive all that you desire uh, to impart to us today by your spirit, Lord, who's here to teach us and to guide us and to lead us and to comfort us, come alongside of us in a beautiful way. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. All right, so we're gonna have a little bit of participation here at the beginning, so get ready. I want you to name the celebrity associated with his catchphrase. Okay, so here we go. I pity the fool. That's an easy one. That's the way it is. Walter Cronkite. You might be a redneck. Jeff Foxworthy. Won't you be my neighbor? I get no respect. Thank you. Thank you very much. I didn't inhale. President Bill Clinton. Is that your final answer? Regis Philbin. Cowabunga. Ninja Turtle. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The balcony is closed. Siskel and Ebert. My son didn't know that, so that made my day. There's, I, it's rare. Believe me, I have to take my, my victories where I can find them. But anyway... Welcome to Flavortown. Guy Fieri. Mmm, donuts. Homer Simpson. I was going to say Pat Mundy, but. <laughs> the tr- <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, we're friends, or we were. The, <laughs> the tribe has spoken. Jeff Probst. There's a sucker born every minute. P.T. Barnum, or one of the Barnums. Just the facts, ma'am. Sergeant Joe Friday, Jack Webb. And ready or not, Jesus is coming. All right. Give yourself a hand. There you go. Now, watch this brilliant segue. If Ezra had a catchphrase... It would be some variation of, by the good hand of our God upon us. He says something like that six times in the next two chapters. Ezra hints in the last verse of chapter 7 that the good hand of God is related to or in the same category as God's mercy, which can also be translated loving kindness or steadfast love. The mercy, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God, that's going to be our theme as I organize my comments around two questions. Number one... Do you fear the hand of the Lord upon you? And number two, do you feel the hand of the Lord upon you? Let's take a look at our fear in verses one through 10. Now, if the writer of the Proverbs had one catchphrase, it might be the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's from Proverbs 9. After all, the book of Proverbs is called wisdom literature, so it makes sense that the fear of the Lord would be foundational to it. 
One commentator defined the fear of the Lord by saying it is, and I quote, the continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think and say and do. While that is true of our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, it sounds a little harsh, as if God is following me with his clipboard, writing down cryptic criticisms as I constantly fail and then not showing them to me. Or it can be understood the way Ezra understood it, God's mercy and loving kindness and steadfast love comforting me and guiding me as if his hand was literally upon me the way a father holds a child. And so let's go with that. And when we get to verse 28, I'm going to share something along those lines that I think is pretty precious. Uh, Verses 1 through 5, lots of names that I'm going to butcher, but just flow with it. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriath, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki. That's a fish name. Nobody, first service thought that was funny, but apparently you guys don't. So anyway, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now this is a turn of the page for us or just a move into another chapter, but chapter seven starts about 60 years after the events of chapter six. The book of Esther takes place during that time. Uh, And what we're beginning to see here is a second wave of returnees to Jerusalem led by Ezra. It reads as if Ezra spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com going over his genealogy. Super popular today to search your genealogy. You're hoping to find hidden treasure. You just might open door number two and get zonked. A lot of articles like the one titled, My Ancestry Test Revealed a Genetic Bombshell reporting how a woman found out her father wasn't her biological dad. Some of you may think it's better to know the truth. That's your prerogative. I like what Yondu told Star-Lord about ego. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. I'm content with all the lies my parents have told me over the years about my heritage and where we came from and not anxious to find out anything about it. Um, I don't want to go to support groups about, you know, what really happened in Italy before we came over here and who knew Mussolini and those kinds of things. But anyway, not saying that we did, but who knows. In Ezra's case, he traced his ancestry directly to Aaron. That's the point of these five verses. Aaron, the older brother of Moses, Israel's first high priest. It was an impressive credential for someone coming to teach the law of Moses to a group that had strayed from it. Jews still revere Ezra as a kind of second Moses because of the revival he brought during the second temple period. Verse six, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. We've been pointing out God's providence in these studies. He is directly involved in human history. He superintends it so that it will arrive at the prophesied end. His involvement, however, does not violate free will. It doesn't negate personal responsibility. Ezra was God's guy, raised up at just the right time, but he had to be ready, prepared as a skilled scribe prior to this in order to be used. Artaxerxes was king. God influenced him to be a help to Ezra without force or coercion. 
along the lines of providence and free will, I like to use the illustration of uh, Esther in the book of Esther. Most of you are familiar with the story. She ended up the queen, and uh, right at a time when a guy named Haman had the king sign a decree that allowed people to kill Jews and take their property. And so uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, he came to her and he said, hey, you've been raised up for just this moment. Imagine that, a Jewish girl married to the king, the queen of Persia, so that we can be saved. And it certainly looked that way, and that's the way it turned out. But then Mordecai said something else. He said, if you won't do it, help will come from another source. So even he, not a very spiritual guy, recognized that Esther had the free will to say yes or no, and should she say no, then a help would come from another source. And so that's the way we look at God's providence. He will accomplish everything he said he would accomplish, but he'll do it without violating free will. When you read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, all of what's in it, in terms of the future, starting in chapter 6, all of that is definitely going to happen. There's not going to be some coming together of all the nations of the world in a kumbaya moment so that God says, aw, isn't that cute? I guess I don't have to pour out my wrath after all. Men are not going to do that. They're going to continue to rebel and get worse and worse and worse. Anybody here think the world isn't getting worse? Um, Just watch the news for 10 minutes. It's worse than it's ever been. Uh, And God's going to superintend that future and bring it to its final end and us into eternity uh, by his providence without violating anyone's free will. Now, one thing we might say then about God's hand being upon us is that it means he guides us, uh, moves us along just the way we want to go. Your GPS will guide you. You have to follow its prompts, otherwise it resets from your errors. I sort of like that. I feel like I'm, I'm getting my money's worth out of my GPS. And so a lot of times, just, you know, maybe I'm going someplace and, the, you know, I'm leaving my house and the, the GPS wants to take me north up to Fargo before I go south. I say, I'm not going that way. And so I head the other way and it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, do a U-turn on Dowdy. No, oh, where are you? You better go on Terrace now. And it just keeps correcting. And I think, yeah, I know more than you. But with God, that's not such a good thing. God is guiding you and you and I don't always follow his prompts, do we? We end up going left or right or straying backwards. And Now, the good thing about that, the gracious thing, is that God will get us back on track, and he's promised to complete what he started in us. Uh, but better to cooperate and not have to make so many U-turns. The plan is to get you where you need to go, follow the prompts, and be thankful for his resets. Verse 7, some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Nethanim were temple assistants that had been established by King David. One writer described them like this. He said, some very disagreeable drudgery was always necessary. Chopping of wood, the lighting of fires, the sharpening of knives, the drawing of water, the cleansing not only of the altar and its surroundings and utensils, but of the whole of the temple precincts. And the performance of many menial offices for the priests required a large staff of servants. And so these Nephanim, they had all of these menial uh, jobs. Uh, there was a lot of blood in the tabernacle, and they had to clean that up and, and sharpen the knives and chop the wood and all of that behind the scenes stuff. And it prompts us to think am I okay with menial tasks, with drudgery? Because a lot of what constitutes ministry is going to be labeled here comes the drudge. I mean, it's, 
you know, everybody thinks the ministry is just something, you know, uh, sharing Christ with people and seeing them get saved, but there's a whole lot of things that go on behind the scenes, not just in full-time ministry. I'm talking about in your own life. There is a great deal of menial drudgery to take place, and you need to be ready for that. Do it as unto the Lord. Uh, doesn't matter if you're, here's the thing. If you're doing something as unto the Lord, does it matter what you're doing? Does it matter if you're preaching to a stadium filled with people and thousands get saved or you're ministering to, to one person face to face? It really doesn't matter if you're doing it as unto the Lord. The ministry obviously has different consequences and it goes in different directions, but, but we need to have the mentality that whatever the Lord has asked us to do, we do it as unto him and it's valuable. And it's not, well, it is drudgery, but it's sanctified drudgery. It's spirit-led drudgery and we can be joyous about it. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Chapter 7 gives us an introduction to Ezra and his ministry. Chapter 8 is going to fill in some of the blanks. For now, it's enough to note that it was a four-month, 900-mile walk from Babylon to Jerusalem. I don't know where they charged their Fitbits along the way, but it was a, it was a workout, believe me. Obviously, that kind of travel in those days was brutal, but again, he mentions that the good hand of his God was upon him. Verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Prepared is alternately translated as always giving his time and attention to. In his case, as a scribe, concentrating on God's word was a full-time pursuit. In most of your cases, it is not. You have careers, you have jobs, you have homes to run. You really can't devote your full energy to studying. But we all can give as much time and attention to God's word as we can. And I, I think that's uh, probably a, a basic bedrock principle for uh, those of us who attend Calvary Chapel because of the way we teach through the scriptures. We're not the only ones who teach through the scriptures verse by verse and book by book. Other churches do that. But uh, the majority of churches do not. Uh, somebody was telling me last week they invited somebody to watch our services online and they got a call afterwards saying, you guys really do go verse by verse as if we were lying about it or something, you know? So uh, it's just becoming more and more unusual. And so you, you guys, you enjoy the study of the word and you uh, want to study it as much as you can on your own. I, I remember when I first got saved, I either purchased or somebody gave me a copy of Tim LaHaye's book, How to Study the Bible for Yourself. And one of the recommendations that he made was to get a basic Bible library. And so for my first birthday after I became born again, I only asked for books from this list. And so I ended up with Unger's Bible Dictionary, The Whole Bible Commentary by Jameson Fawcett Brown, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It was a stunningly exciting birthday. But it was. I was so excited about that. I think, I'm sure Pam was there. and every, Oh, it's a book. And oh, it's another book. And my family made fun of me the whole time which is why I believe everything else they've told me. 
but uh, anyway, it was great. It was like a testimony and a witness. My poor, what was it? I, I forget. Somebody had to go into the Christian bookstore. I, I think it was a big deal. I think they sent my next oldest brother, Richard, with this list, you know, and stuff. And it was, he it went in with disguise to the Berean bookstore in Colton and stuff. And so it's, it's a really, it was interesting. But uh, if you don't have a basic Bible library, talk to us. We'll tell you what you need to buy or find online. Uh, do you guys know about eSword, the free Bible program online? eSword, eSword. Yeah, you should have it on your phone or uh, on your uh, whatever tablet. Uh, it, tons of free books that you can get and others that you can buy. So anyway, no reason not to have a good study source and to, if you're going to whip out your phone and do social media, you might as well listen to a Bible study or uh, do some reading and stuff like that. I had no plans to become a scribe. I simply wanted to have the tools I needed to give as much time and attention to God's word as I could. Ezra sets a good example in that he learned the word, then he lived the word, and then he taught others. It doesn't mean you need to be perfect because you never will be. It does mean we ought not to be hypocrites by putting burdens on others in teaching and talking that we ourselves do not bear. Don't tell people to do things that are a good idea but that you're not doing unless you say, you know what, let's do this together. And so if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I've got this going on, you should fast. Fast and pray. Do you ever do that? No, I've never done that in my life, but I hear it works. Uh, you know, and so just be careful about things. Otherwise, you, you end up a modern-day Pharisee where you're just casting burdens on people. They think, oh, you're spiritual, and so I guess I should do those things that you don't do. Uh, and and it, it's not honest. Here's another example. If you've never suffered very much, you're going to have less to say to encourage people who are suffering. And you know what? That's biblical. The Apostle Paul wrote this. This is from the contemporary English version uh, because it reads easier. He said, God comforts us when we are in trouble so that we can share that same comfort with others in trouble. We share in the terrible sufferings of Christ, but also in the wonderful comfort he gives. You must first be comforted by God in terrible sufferings to be able to encourage others in their terrible sufferings. It doesn't mean you can't minister Jesus to those who are suffering if you haven't gone through what they're going through. But it does mean you should be cautious not to put a burden on them by overstepping your own experience. I think sometimes it's better to just say to somebody, I love you, I am praying for you, I am with you in spirit, I think about your situation all the time, if you need anything, that kind of stuff, rather than to offer your biblical solutions uh, to their problem. When you say to somebody who's suffering, brother, the joy of the Lord is your strength, uh, they want to say, yeah, I know that, but I'm not experiencing that right now. And, and so we need to just be a little bit cautious. We used to call them Bible bullets that you shoot at people, you know, where you want to, certainly you want to give people the Bible, uh, but, um, you know, if, if you haven't been through something, be a little bit more genuine. I, I find myself saying to people all the time now, I have no idea what you're feeling. I have never been through that situation. And even if I had, I might not know what you're feeling. And so let me do what I, I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna tell you the truth. Uh, you know, those kinds of things and, and just keep it at that. So, do you fear the hand of the Lord upon you? I think we would agree that Ezra did, even though it's not directly stated. To him, fearing the Lord meant preparing his heart to serve, stepping up when called to serve, whether in exile, uh, we meet him here for the first time, but he's been in exile with the rest of the Jews. 
Uh, then he has to take a long, dangerous journey. I mean, this wasn't, you know, it'd be one thing if somebody said, hey, you want to go on a missions trip and, uh, you, you know, you fly over there. And I mean, it's difficult. I'm not saying modern missions is easy, but uh, Ezra, hey, you want to go to Jerusalem? Yeah, how am I going to get there? You know, walk 900 miles in four months. I hope you've been keeping pace with this, you know. And you're going to cook along the way and camp. Camping's fun for some people. I hate camping. I've never liked camping. But some people like to camp. Would you like to camp for 900 days? Or not, not for five months, four or five months, go 900 miles, setting up your tent every night? I set up a tent in my living room last night for my granddaughter or Friday night so that she could have a camp over. I was exhausted. <laughs> Those things are tough. Those poles, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't want to do that for four or five months. It wasn't the fear of disobeying and therefore being punished. It was the fear of pleasing God on account of God's mercy and long-suffering and steadfast love. It's true, God's hand sometimes dispenses discipline, but even then, it is only those whom he loves that he chastens. Uh, verse 11 to 28, do you feel the hand of the Lord upon you? We've been taught to walk by faith, not by feelings. While that, in one sense, is good and true, we might be overdoing it if we think we should ignore our feelings. So you should walk by faith, not feelings. If you want to do something that the Lord has commanded you to not do, and you feel like, okay, I'll just get into it. People all the time come in, they say, I, I, I'm not in love with my spouse anymore, but I am in love with this other person. I don't care about that feeling. That's so lame. You need to walk by faith and obey God and, and realize those feelings come and go. But what I'm talking about this morning is we have feelings as human beings and God wants us to have God-honoring feelings. In the New Testament, we're told to have uh, hope and joy and fear and peace and zeal and grief and desire and tenderheartedness and a lot of other human emotions that are God-honoring. The references Ezra makes to the hand of God are obviously an attempt to personalize our relationship and to elicit emotion. Ezra understood God as reaching out in love and with affection, leading and correcting and holding his hand. Uh, there's that scripture in the Psalms. We sing a song, he's the lifter of my head. The picture there is of someone who is downcast, uh, emotionally distraught with your face down to the ground, and the Lord reaching out and lifting your chin so that he can look into your eyes. And, and share with you his love. And so uh, we are emotional beings. We have feelings. Now keep that in mind as we work quickly through these remaining verses. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commands of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Now, Ezra wrote this, but he wasn't boasting. He wasn't, you know, going out on a limb saying, yeah, I'm an expert. This is the job description of the priest and the scribe, uh, and he would have said it of any scribe. Your job description is to become expert in what the word says about being a husband or a wife or a child or an employer or an employee, a citizen or anything else. The information is easily accessible in the Bible. You just need to learn it and then live it and then be able to teach it. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the king of the God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth. In other words, he's condensing the letter. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, 
And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem, now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. God determined to fund this project using Persian or we would say government money. Uh, In the church age in which we live, God's work depends on the free will giving of his saints and that's how it's supported. Verse 19, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to... 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Artaxerxes' motive was to live in harmony with the God of Israel in order to not be overthrown. While Israel's recent history had been one of captivity... Artaxerxes may have understood it was a discipline from their God, and he may have known their earlier history when no Gentile nation could stand against them. Uh, We see Israel in captivity, but prior to that, you know, the conquest of the Holy Land, uh, I mean, nations fell before them like crazy. It was like a hot knife cutting through butter. And Artaxerxes sees that God's hand is again upon Israel. They are rebuilding. They've been sent back by the decree of Cyrus. Better be on the good side of Israel uh, because when they obey their God, they are unstoppable, undefeatable, immovable, and all you're going to do is, is lose that battle. Verse 24, and we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. No tax for ministers. I'm going to file form 1040 Ezra this year. Well, there is a 1040 EZ, so I just need to add two letters to it and say zero everywhere. What do you think? It'll work. Yeah, thanks for encouraging me. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. Teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. By all the people was meant Jews. Artaxerxes was giving Ezra permission to live by the law of Moses in their own land. Muslim immigrants want to apply Sharia law where they settle. I bring it up to illustrate. The Israelites were restricted to within their own sovereign borders, not wherever they lived in Persia. And so the, you know, the Persian king was saying, hey, in Israel, in Jerusalem, you want to live by the law of Moses, that's your business. Outside of Israel, in the rest of Persia, no way. And so that's a, I don't know if that sets a precedent, but it's, it's what's being said here. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, 
who has put such a thing as this in the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. This is emotional. It's full of feeling. Imagine what was going on in Ezra's heart. He was encouraged, which is accompanied by feelings. He blessed the Lord, motivated by the joy and hope and the peace that he felt. If we allow for those emotions, we must allow for ones that are darker and negative. The apostle Paul despaired. He was anxious about the spiritual state of believers. The psalmists describe many difficult emotions. It is part of our sanctification, our daily walk, to work through our emotions and break through to joy and other God-honoring emotions. Uh, and I don't know anybody who can just flip a switch and go from you know, one to the other. It's a process. You get back to joy. We looked at that a few weeks ago. You rediscover hope. Um, you find the peace of God. Can you have them always? Sure, absolutely. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Do you? No, because you're human. You have an unredeemed humanity to deal with and a world that is ruled by the devil with terrible, awful things happening in it. But know this, we are to break through to these things and it is part of our growth in Christ. Now let me point out something that as I teased earlier, I find a little bit precious. In verse 28, the Hebrew word for mercy is by all scholarly accounts extremely difficult to translate into English. Mercy, long-suffering, steadfast love are all acceptable, but they all fall short because they, they don't really capture the sense of who and what God is. Several authors therefore point out that the root word here is also the root word for stork. I know that sounds a, a little bit off topic, even a little funny, but let me ask you this. What do you associate with storks. They deliver babies. You see them at the Adventist hospital all the time. They are trusted to deliver babies. There's a long history of cultures using the stork in this manner. And here's why, according to one researcher, he says, storks are excellent parents. They care for their young faithfully with great loyalty and devotion. They return to the same nesting sites year after year, and they practice serial monogamy. Here's another interesting quote. The Hebrew word for stork was equivalent to kind mother, and the care of storks for their young in their highly visible nests made the stork a widespread emblem of parental care. It was widely noted in ancient natural history that a stork pair will be consumed with nest in a fire rather than fly away and abandon it. There's a meme circulating the web that says, I saw your picture in the dictionary today right next to, and then you fill in the blank. Mine would be handsome. <laughs> it's a modern version of what we used to say, uh, like you'd say, if you want to know what the word patriot means, look up, so and so, you know, look up in the dictionary and so-and-so's picture will be there. Uh, it, it's an idea that a picture is worth more than words, more than a definition. Sometimes an example is richer than definition, God's mercy, long-suffering, steadfast love, it's like that of a stork caring for its young. He's willing to be burned up in the nest rather than abandon you, as it were. Jesus in the New Testament said, God's love is like a mother hen gathering her young under her wings. And so the, the, the language gives us these pictures 
so that we'll understand these aren't just definitions. These are activities that in, it should elicit emotion from you. Except that unlike birds, God happens to be omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. His tenderness is something powerful and his promises cannot fail. I can only trust that as you reflect on this, you'll recover joy and hope and peace and all the good feelings of a walk with God, even you, uh, if you are in the fire. One final question, what do you want to be your catchphrase as a believer? Let's pray.